back to the manual here. Uh, we do have the Generational Curse books out now, and uh, I've signed some and put them in the bookstore, so those are available for you. So they will be out there. Also, two things here. First question said, you used the term 40 units of healing in an analogy yesterday. My question is, how do we keep ourselves at 100% for healing? That's a good question. And in fact, we are going to cover that. Uh, if you want to look ahead, don't look right now because we're fixing to be going through the manual. But there is a chapter in the manual on John G. Lake's Divine Healing Secrets and his Secrets of Spiritual Power. If you take those two, internalize the Divine Healing Secrets, learn those, and then do the what is generally called the, the uh, Secrets of Power and put those into practice, then it is a way of keeping you at that ready level. Now, two things. <clears throat> the Bible says, and Jesus himself said it, he said there will be many in that day that come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? He said, you did all these, didn't we do all these wonderful works in your name? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Now, <clears throat> so two things here. First off, <clears throat> you can do all these things that we tell you to do, and they will work, and you will walk in power. You will see amazing things happen, and you could still end up being that person that Jesus says, I never knew you, right? Because the power of God is mechanical, right? If it, I was going to say if you don't believe that, but you might not know it, but you do believe it, right? You say, okay, I, I don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, you do. You just don't know you do. Uh, because you got here today because you looked at your watch, and your watch is set on the rotation of the sun or of the earth around the sun, and that's mechanical. And God set that in order, and we all got here at approximately the same time, or at least you knew what time to get here. And so <clears throat> that was all mechanical because God set that in order, and it works like clockwork. Right? He doesn't have to start over, over every morning and say, all right, sun, you know, you, you keep burning. Uh, earth, let's do it again. Let's go around one more time. No, he put it in motion. Uh, whenever Moses stood before the Red Sea, he started crying to God. And God told him, and that is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, God's response to Moses' praying was, Why are you crying to me? Whenever, whenever you got the, I almost said the Red Army, when you got the Red Sea at one end and the Egyptian army at the other, okay, <laughs> that <clears throat> between those two and you're in between them, uh, if there was ever a time to pray, that would be the time. And yet God said, why, why are you praying to me? Why, why are you crying to me? And Moses, I'm sure Moses got real quiet and, and was thinking, uh, <laughs> uh, hello, you know. And he said, what is that in your hand? And he said, that's your rod. And he said, then you stretch forth your hand and, I'll, and, and part the sea. He said, you stretch forth your hand and part the sea. He didn't say you stretch forth your hand and I'll do it. He said, you stretch forth your hand and do it. Now, here's the principle. The principle is whenever God gives you a mission, then he expects you to accomplish it. That also means that whenever an, some type of obstacle gets in the way of you accomplishing your mission, you can, be, you can rest assured that that obstacle is not from God because he told you to do the mission. So anything that comes up, you have the responsibility, not just the right, the responsibility to overcome it. Right? You have the responsibility to kick in the door, kick it down, break it down. Whatever you've got to do, your job is to accomplish the mission that God told you to accomplish. And so basically what Moses was saying 
is uh, we got this Egyptian army and we got this Red Sea. God, do something. And he said, what have I told you? I told you, take my children out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. I didn't say get them to the Red Sea and die there. So whatever you got to do to make this happen, you do it and I'll back you up. And that's what he did. And he parted the Red Sea, stretched forth his hand. The sea parted. They came through. And then whenever the Egyptian army came through, the waters collapsed upon them. So the whole point is that that was mechanical. There was another time also with the Ark of the Covenant that he said, anybody touches this Ark, you die. And as they were bringing the Ark in, it hit a rocky spot, rough area, and the Ark started to fall off. And one guy just tried to do the right thing, he thought, reached up to steady the Ark, touched it, dropped dead. Was it that God said, oh, that's it, you're dead. No, God had already put it in motion. The law is you touch it, you die. God didn't have to kill him. It was already in motion. It was just like with Adam and Eve. You eat that tree, you die. God didn't stand there and have to say, all right, don't do it, don't do it. And then so they did it. Okay, you're dead. No, he already put the law in motion. God's power is mechanical. His, His law is in motion. If you're a believer, you lay hands on the sick, they recover. All you got to do is believe when you do it. Hence, being a believer, right? Now, you can believe that you can lay hands on the sick and, and God will recover them and still not technically be a follower of Jesus in the sense that you have, well, number one, if you look at what Jesus said, he said, uh, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So they were still practicing iniquity even though they were healing the sick, even though they were doing the things, they were still doing iniquity. And he said, I don't know you. So you can do everything we tell you. You can, you can do it right. You can do it right down to the letter and still stand before Jesus and him say, yep, you did cast out devils. Yep, you sure did heal the sick. Uh, but I don't know you. And so we, the, the big key that I'm trying to get to here is, yes, you can do these things, but don't do them without knowing God. Know him. Develop a relationship with him. It's not hard. The problem has been, In the church, we have made that relationship the basis of receiving power. And the minute you put something onto that relationship, now it's no longer a relationship. It becomes manipulation. It becomes a farce. And so we have to realize we have a relationship with God because we can have a relationship with God. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can have that relationship. Now, one of the benefits of having that relationship, oh yeah, by the way, we get to cast out devils and we get to heal the sick. You say, Chris, that sounds good. Is there, any, is, there any benef- is there any proof of this? Oh, yeah. That's what Jesus said when they came back and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through your name. He said, that's good. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in that. But rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. Yes. See? So it goes back. There. He said, look, that's great, guys. You sh- I sent you out to do it. But don't get all hung up in that. Rather, be excited about the fact that you are known of your Father in heaven. Right. So, yes, the power of God is mechanical. And that's one of the things that we have to um, to be very honest that we've watched over the last 15 years as we kind of started this move of ministering out on the streets is that we saw people. We've actually seen the fulfillment of the scripture Jesus referred to and that he said that we've seen people that their whole thing was getting people healed so they could get it on video so they could put it on YouTube so they could build a following so they could get money. And because of that, we've watched people now that their whole thing is about results and they don't even try to disciple the people 
that they're actually getting healed, which is the purpose for the sign in the beginning. See, we jump right over that and we're many times as Pentecostals, charismatic, spirit-filled people, we're really excited about the power and it's almost like we jump over getting born again. Yeah, get, get born again quick so you can do this power stuff. No, 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 no. It's the born again thing that makes it all worthwhile. Amen? And so there are going to be people that do that so you can walk in power and, you know, just as another proof in case you're having a problem with that, uh, Paul said that even though I have faith to move mountains, if I don't have love, then it doesn't profit me anything. And so you can, and a lot of people say, well, you know, faith works by love. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Because if that were true, Paul couldn't have said, if I have faith to move mountains and don't have love, he should have said, then it won't work anyway. But he didn't. In Galatians, where it says, faith which worketh by love, he's basically saying that what you get credited for, what you get rewarded for, is whenever you walk in faith that is motivated from love. Now, you can walk in faith, and if it's not motivated by love, you do good for people. People get healed, you don't get any benefit of it. You don't get any credit for it. You don't get any uh, of the blessing that comes from that because you're not walking in love. Your motives aren't right, right? The people still get blessed. They still get healed. People still get helped, but it doesn't do you any good, right? So all of this, we have to take all of these scriptures together and look at them. And so it's important. The power of God is mechanical. There's several other places uh, where it actually talks about it. Uh, but at one point, we will talk about these two uh, situations or these two um, lists that we give you on the secrets of divine healing and on uh, the secrets of spiritual power. So it is possible to live there. It is good to live there. It's not hard. Uh, honestly, the big thing is just keeping the distractions away. It's easy to get distracted. And so we want to stay focused and do our job. Honestly, all of, um, all of life is designed to distract you. The world system, world entertainment, uh, just life in general is designed to distract you from the realities of, of the spirit realm. And so the whole point is that they're trying to get you tied up in these things, even life itself, how fast paced it is and what you have to do and all these things. And someone asks, you know, how can we do that and still take care of, you know, the normal things, paying bills and you know, all that kind of stuff that you have to do. Well, there was nothing wrong with it because even Jesus recognized he had to pay tax and it didn't distract him. So you can do it. It's just a matter of where your treasure is. Where do you put your time? You know, it's, it's funny. It's a, I was thinking about this this morning. It's actually a closed system, meaning out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And yet if you speak, what you give yourself to gets into your heart. And so if you want to change what's coming out of your heart, change what's going in your heart. You hear that? And how you change that is by what you watch, by what you say, by what you hear, is by the things around you. If you want to change what comes out, change what goes in. Right? It's just that simple. And so it comes down to that point. Now, then the second question was, what's going on when we have to fight for 45 minutes or an hour in order to see results? Uh, I, well, let me put it this way. Our first conference, our first public conference that we did, uh, I think it was in 2000, 2001, something like that. <clears throat> we contacted a worship team and we were in a church in Tulsa. Uh, the, the, we knew the people there and they let us use that building. And we called this worship team and they said, oh, we'd be glad to come uh, do the worship for you. We said, okay. So uh, they said, you know, send us a, a kind of a schedule of what's going on. And we sent them the schedule. And they said, you know, we noticed in the, in the beginning here, uh, at the beginning of every service, 
you've only got like 30, 45 minutes set for, for worship. And they said, we need to get in there at least an hour and a half early every day and begin worshiping before you let the people in. And then after that, we need at least an hour to an hour and a half of worship. And whenever I read that, they sent it to me in an email. And so basically they were needing an hour and a half to three hours just to do what they do. And I wrote them back and I said, what sin are you in that it takes you three hours to get into the presence of God? And they said, well, you know, we have, we have stuff and everybody has to shake things off and that kind of stuff. I'm like, man, I don't have to shake anything off when I come in. I walk with God. Right? And, and I'm not saying stuff doesn't come. I'm just saying it doesn't get to the point where when I walk in here, I'm still, you know, <laughs> yeah, oppressed and, and, and depressed and heavy laden when I come in here. It's kind of like, man, when I come in here, it's like, yeah, oh, it's good. You know, I can forget all that stuff. And let's just, man, God, there you go. You, you want to, well, we know we got to break through. You want to break through? It's easy. Jesus. Oop. We're through. There it is, right? We don't have to do all that stuff. I mean, think about it. So whenever we say things like, okay, you know, what's going on when we have to fight for 45 minutes or an hour? I'm, I'm not relating you to that. Please understand. Uh, in the sense that I think you're in a sin or something like that. I'm just saying we have been trained to think this way. And very honestly, most of that, that time limit, has to do with how far our minds are renewed to the truths of the Bible. Many people agree with the Bible. Okay, uh, E.W. Kenyon called that mental assent. You agree with it, but you don't believe it. Okay, agreeing with it is one thing. And, and the best illustration I ever heard, I think it's actually, um, I, I heard it from Kenneth Hagin, so I, I don't know if he was the one that said it first. I don't think he was. But um, he said, let me tell you the difference between faith and, and mental assent. He said, you got this guy, and he's, walk, he's got a tightrope between two cliffs, and he's got a wheelbarrow, and he walks across that tightrope with that wheelbarrow. And everybody's, and, and he starts to, he goes across and he comes back and he says, how many of you think that I can walk across this tightrope again with this wheelbarrow? How many of you think I can do that? And everybody's, oh, yes, yes, you can do it. You can do it. He says, all right, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and one guy says, well, I will. And he goes, okay, that's the difference between faith and mental assent. That man had faith. Everybody else just mentally agreed that it could happen. And so he said, how do you bring that into our life? What you do shows your faith. Right? Jesus saw the men's faith when he saw them, when they brought their sick friend, couldn't get in, and they started tearing the roof off. He saw their faith. They were doing whatever it took to get the results they needed. Right? That's faith. Okay? Middle, mental assent agrees the Bible's true, agrees with every bit of it, and yet do you do it? Oh, no, no. Uh, but I agree with it. See, I do believe that there are going to be people, the same scripture we just mentioned earlier, that will stand before Jesus and say, man, we heal, we heal the sick, we cast out devils, we spoke in tongues, we, we did all that stuff. And I do believe there's going to be people that Jesus look at and say, uh, you did it? Oh, yeah, we did it. No, wait, wait, not we, you. You did it. Well, I was in a church. Our church did it. You know, I saw it. Every, I, I agreed. I mean, I'm part of that church, and the church was doing it. Okay, but you have to realize there is a degree, just like uh, Todd was saying earlier, you join with us whenever and, and you help support us when we go overseas. There is a joining together that you are credited with what we're doing. But for that credit to work, you still have to be doing what you can do at home. In other words, God did not relegate it to where you just write a check and there's your duties. Yeah, right. hmm? you, you can do that. You can join with us, but you also have to be putting it into practice yourself. It's not enough that you go to a church where they cast out devils. 
It's not enough that you go to a church where they speak in tongues. You need to do it. You need to, to actually embrace it, internalize it, and do it, right? And so that's an important part of it. Otherwise, it's just mental assent. And honestly, mental assent only lasts for a while, and then mental assent becomes doubt and unbelief. And what happens is whenever you don't walk out what you say you believe, you end up not living it. Then you move into doubt and unbelief. And the first thing you do is you start picking apart the people around you. And you start saying, well, they're, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it right. They, look at these people. They're not doing this. You know, I'm better than them. Man, my life is better than their life. And, and you start picking people apart because you're not actually doing it yourself. And you move even from the mental ascent into doubt and unbelief. Right? So it's important. Whatever you learn, you should do within 72 hours. If it is a fact, whatever you learn, whatever you hear, that you do not put into practice within 72 hours, the odds are you will never do it. That's why it's so important. That's why the discipleship aspect is so important. Discipleship almost forces you to do it, right? Because somebody says, all right, we're going to go, and you're going to do it this time. Well, I don't want, well, too bad. It's not what you want. You want to be part of this group, then you're going to do it, right? And you almost get forced into it to break the ice, so to speak, so that you actually start doing it. So, all right, let's get into the manual. Uh, we will talk more about this a little bit later on. Yeah, well, actually, it finished up. It said, um, when you prayed for your daughter to come back to life, it took time, but it was worth it. Yes, it was. And then it says uh, they are wrestling in prayer over one of their relatives. Um, <clears throat> Then whenever I let up, the Lord tells me to get back in the fight. That's true. That's good. It's been a long war with evil breaking off, but I just don't know why it's taking so long. Usually, the reason it takes a while is because you do just enough to alleviate the pressure. Usually, you, the problem is most people don't get fed up. And if you read those uh, Secrets of Divine Healing, you'll see that's one of the first ones, if not the first one is to get fed up. You have to decide this is it. You put your foot down and you blast it. You go after that thing. You blast it. You do what you got to do. But you go after it until that thing is, in biblical terms, utterly destroyed. Right? You do not just let it back off. Too many people. I've seen a lot of people that said they were standing in faith. They were fighting. And they fight the thing off just enough to alleviate and then they think they're done and then the thing comes back and either kills them or kills their loved one. So it's not enough to alleviate the pressure. You have to destroy the thing. You say, how do you know when it's destroyed? When they are perfectly, completely healed and normal. Right? So there is that aspect of you getting fed up. As we would say, just grit your teeth, dig in and blast that thing. I mean, you, you get fed up. You get, best way to say it is just you get mad. You know, the Bible calls or Christians call it righteous indignation, okay? Basically what it means is you get fed up and you get mad and you go after that thing. Now, and usually when you do that once or twice, you don't have to do it every time. The enemy, let me tell you, your reputation will spread among the enemy, right? He'll know if you're ser serious or not. And so a lot of these things, he, and the, the problem is we do just enough to alleviate the pressure and then this, what should have been a... Very quick victory becomes a long, drawn-out, stalemate type of war. And the enemy knows if he can just hang on, he will usually win. Because people get tired, they get wore out, or something else hits, and they just collapse. 
And so the idea is that is one of the reasons why it's important that you have somebody that, that is a close friend, partner, somebody that you can join with specifically for prayer to agree to get these things done. And whenever you feel like wavering, you can call them and go, you know, man, this this battle is, I, you know, I just I'm just getting kind of tired. They need to stir you up. They need to urge you on. The Bible calls it exhortation. And they need to 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 push you. OK, uh, the Bible talks about provoking one another unto love and good works. Sometimes you need to be provoked. Amen. A lot of times, actually. And so all of that has to do. But the enemy knows if he can drag it out, then usually you'll just put up with it. And usually he'll say, OK, this is their limit. So if I can keep it right about here, I can I can have fun with them and they won't they won't get fed up and they won't chase me off. And what you have to do is you have to learn to lower your tolerance to zero. Right. So that when the enemy comes, you have absolutely no tolerance whatsoever because what you tolerate will dominate you. Right. So you need to set these things in yourself. Now, now let's get back in the manual. All right. Section nine. This is talking about divine healing and the will of God. There's several of them here. And obviously I'm not going to read all of them because you can read them and they're self-explanatory. So I don't need to read through of them. And, but you, I want you to get the principle. The principle here is we're talking about what is God's will. So if it says in John 10, 10, I'm just, I'm just using these uh, scriptures as examples. Once you see this, you ought to be able to take scriptures and apply them the same way. So get the principle. OK, don't take this as a formula but get the principle behind it. John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Okay, so what would be the principle there about God's will? Well, if Jesus came to give us life and that more abundantly, then it must be his will that we have life. Amen. And that we have it more abundantly. And if he comes in contradiction to what the will of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy, then by the same token, God's will has to be that we not be killed, that we not be destroyed, that the things not be stolen from us. Is that right? You see that? So that's the principle. That's how you apply that. So whatever you read in the Bible of whatever he says he gives us, we can know that that's God's will. And we know that the corollary to it is that the other side is not his will. Right? It's really very simple. First John 3, 8. Uh, he that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So God's will must be that the works of the devil be destroyed. Right? So then you say, well, did he, did he accomplish it? Yes, he did. He destroyed it. He took away all the power, all the authority. Now understand, he took away the authority of the enemy, but the enemy still has ability. That means he can still do it. <clears throat> this is one of the things that always amazed me when I hear Christians uh, talk because they'll say, well, you know, uh, I know it's not God's will, but I gave the devil the authority because I opened the door here. You know, I, I must have done something to open the door to let him in. Uh, and, and I don't know why people think that. OK, he's called a thief. Right. Thieves don't only just enter into open doors. They actually break in and see what makes a thief a thief is the fact that he doesn't have authority. See, the minute a thief has authority, he's no longer a thief. If you go into a bank and say, I want to withdraw money, they're going to say, what's your account number? Oh, well, I don't have an account here. I just want to take money. You're going to say, well, you don't have that authority. Oh, I know I don't have the authority. <laughs> That's why I'm a robber. But I do have a gun. See, I have the ability. <laughs> See, and so they have ability, but they don't have authority, right? That's what makes a thief a thief. He has ability, but he doesn't have authority. And for some reason, Christians think that if the enemy attacks, 
He has to have the authority to attack. If he had the authority, he wouldn't be a thief. You get that? All right, now let's just take it a step further. Let's look at, at, the, at the principle here. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm driving a Yukon, and that, you know, I have my keys to it, and many times I'll leave them laying around somewhere. And, you know, let's say I was back there talking to somebody in a sound booth, and I laid my keys down. And then somebody walked in and walked past, and they said, oh, look, there's some keys. And they took the keys and went outside and, you know, beeped it enough until my car finally beeped. And they go, oh, there it is. And, and then they said, hey, come here. Uh, why don't you take this car for a drive? Just check it out. And they hand it off to somebody else. And then that person gets in the car and then they drive around. And then when we take a break, I go out there to get something out of my car and it's gone. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to say, hey, somebody stole my car. Well, did you give anybody permission to drive it? Nope. Okay. And then they're going to find it and they're going to stop it. They're going to stop the car and then they're going to arrest the guy. And the guy's going to go, wait a minute. My friend told me I could drive this car. I have permission. And they're going to say, what, is your friend's name Cray Blake? No. Well, then your friend didn't have authority to give you permission. Are you with me so far? Okay. So what I'm saying is this. Only the person that owns the car can give permission to somebody else to drive the car. Right? All right. Now, the Bible says, and see, that's when people say, well, that's what I did. See, uh, I gave them, I gave the, the devil permission. I gave him authority to do it. Okay, first off, let's back up. Are you a Christian? Yes. Then you don't have the authority to give him permission because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought by Jesus. He's the only one that can give the devil authority. And he's the one that took authority from the devil and never gave it back to him. Do you get that? So the devil may, just because he attacks you, just because he has the ability to, does not mean he has the authority to do it. That is a lie. It's a sacred cow that the church has built up. And it's one that has caused people to remain in bondage, to, get, to, to keep putting up with stuff because they think, well, then God must have allowed it. No, God said, I'll allow what you allow. He told him, he said, what, Jesus said, listen, I'm, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, let me ask you, where does the binding and loosing start? On the earth, not in heaven. He didn't say, listen, whatever I bind in heaven, that's what you guys get to bind. He didn't say that. He said, whatever you bind. Now, those, that word bind and loose, because it sounds, uh, you know, King James-ish, right? And people don't realize. All he was saying was, whatever you loose, whatever you permit, I will permit. Whatever you bind, in other words, whatever you forbid, I will forbid. So basically, he said, I put you over this thing. This, he, he said, the heavens belong to, the, to God, but the earth has he given to the sons of men. This is, this is our duty. This is our responsibility. He put Adam over the earth and said, you guard it. You subdue the earth. You replenish it. You take care of it. And that's exactly the position that Jesus has put us back into that we are to. Cause, the, the Bible well, tells us in uh, Romans 8 that the whole earth groans waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. What is it waiting for? How is it groaning? It's all the stuff that goes on. And it's up to us to grow up and show up, which is what manifest means. And when we grow up and show up, we start taking our position of authority. Then that's when we start stepping out. We start saying, no, that stops. No, we're not going to have that. That won't go on. And then the earth gets to stop groaning as much because the sons of God are starting to take their authority and, and call things that are not as though they were and start putting things in place. Right. And so this whole idea of, well, if it's happening, God must have permitted it. No, you permitted it. How many times have people said things like, well, God, why would you let this happen? 
And I guarantee you, God said, why did you let this happen? I told you you had authority, right? Let me, let me we'll look at this a little bit later on because like I said, this is all, um, it's in here. It's just coming out as it comes out, you might say. And, and go with me. I'll show it to you in your Bible first and we'll come to it later in the manual. Uh, do you believe the Bible? You believe the Bible, right? So if I show it to you in the Bible, you'll believe it, right? Amen. Okay. Now you ought to know if I say something like that, I'm setting you up. <laughs> okay. Now, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. <clears throat> Verse 16. We'll start there. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, first off, um, you know what? We're right there. You see where it said, but some doubted? Right? And I thought that was kind of neat because, you know, that was written by Matthew. And Matthew was there. Right? He was one of the disciples. He was there. Then you go to Mark. If you just want to hold your place, don't lose Matthew 28. You don't have to go there. But if you want to, you can read it for yourself. But in Mark 16, uh, it's kind of the same situation. But Mark recorded it a little different. Because he said here, uh, let's see. <clears throat> yeah. And verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form and the two of them and they walked and went into the country, as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the rest of them, neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat, and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And notice when Mark says this, he said they, and he's given the, in other words, he's saying all of them. Isn't that right? He's saying they, meaning all of them. He said they, then none of them believed him. The, they had two that was walking, they had Mary Magdalene, and they said they did not believe them. So Mark says none of them believed. And of course, Mark wasn't there when it happened, but Matthew was. And isn't it funny? Matthew says, well, there were some that didn't believe. Well, automatically, why would Matthew say that? And Mark say all of them didn't believe. Well, because Matthew was trying to say that. He was saying, well, yeah, there was some of us that didn't believe. Well, that gives the idea that he was one of the ones that did. He was covering himself. You understand what I'm saying? And it's funny when you read this, how... The Bible shows all the, all the frailties, right? All the failings. And he says, and Matthew said, yeah, there were some that didn't believe. And he, well, let's be more accurate, Matthew. None of you believed. Yeah, yeah, you're right. None of us believed. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. So, but now let's go back to Matthew 28. And Jesus came, and, watch this, and they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came, verse 18, and spoke unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Is that what your Bible says? Mm -hmm. All, power? All okay. power? Is there anybody's Bible that says, well, some power? <laughs> most power. Is that what it says? doesn't even say most, does it? It says all. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think, yeah, I believe in the Greek, that's the, actually the word pas, P-A-S, which literally means all. Okay? Now look at this. All power, and that word power in the Greek, the word power there, is a Greek word exousia. And it means literally authority. So Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, where else is there? I mean, pretty much heaven and earth, that's it. I mean, right? I mean, that's, in other words, he's got it. So all authority is given unto him in heaven and in earth. Is that right? Is that what your Bible says? Yes. If you, and if it's in your Bible, you've got to believe it, right? Yeah. And this was at the end after he was resurrected, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is the deal, okay? 
He said, all authority. Now, here's the problem that I have whenever people say, well, you don't understand. See, I gave the devil authority because I did this. Okay, the minute you say that you can give the devil authority, you just made this scripture a lie. Because you're saying, well, at that moment, Jesus didn't have all authority because the devil has some. Because I gave it to him. Okay. So the problem is not even the devil having it. The problem is thinking you have it, right? That you can actually give it to him. Do you see what I'm saying here? Jesus either has all authority or he doesn't. The scripture says all. So that means that the devil never has authority to do anything. But he's a thief, so he really doesn't need authority to do what he does, right? So that's the point I'm trying to get across to you. Here's one of the big things that, that have caused so much problem in the church is that people think, if the devil has authority, I can't do anything about it. If, the devil, if God gave him permission, I can't do anything about it because God gave him permission. I'd be overruling God. And that would be a right way of thinking. But the fact is, God doesn't give him permission. Why? Because Jesus has all authority and he never gives the devil authority. Matter of fact, the closest we come is that toward the end, actually in the very end or the uh, in Revelation, put it that way, in the book of the Revelation. It says that these uh, demon spirits will have authority for a few months, five months, to hurt man. And that's the first time you see anything after this where that actually took place, where the devil or his demons or anything else could even possibly have any authority. And that was during a specific period of time that had to do with the greatest trouble the earth has ever seen. And so automatically we can see up until now, what's amazing is up until that time, the enemy has no authority to do anything because if the enemy did it, why would he be given authority for five months? He's already had it for 2000 years. You see? And so the whole point of the devil having authority does not hold water at any stretch. Right now, let me tell you, you say, well, then why do things happen? You know, the Bible says uh, the curse causeless does not come, you know, so we, there has to be a reason. There is a reason. There's three of them, right? The first reason why things happen to people and why people get sick or different things happen, number one is sowing and reaping. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap destruction, right? If you sow to the spirit, you will reap life everlasting. Now, who's in charge of sowing? You are. You decide. I don't want to keep reaping what I've been reaping. So what do you do? Change your sowing, right? But you're in charge of it. You decide what you sow, you decide what you reap. When you decide what you sow, you're deciding what you reap. Okay? So be careful what you sow, right? People say, well, I, you know, I just don't, I'm not sure if that, if that holds true. Galatians says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, right? Real simple. Now, the second way things happen is through what is generally called accident. Now, when I say accident, I know some people say, well, it's not an accident. Either God's doing it, the devil's doing it. So it's not. Okay, when I say accident, what I mean is you didn't plan it. You didn't know it was planned. It was something that took place that came kind of out of nowhere and you had no plans of it. So that would be an attack, okay, which actually is the third, what we call the third thing. And so this, we just give it the term an accident, meaning nobody planned it. You live in a fallen world, right, in the world itself. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says that according to God, the church, the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the perfect day, right? So we're supposed to be getting better and better. 
So we're actually moving up. But Newton and his third law of thermodynamics says that everything runs down, right? And if you look at the earth, everything in the earth is running down. Everything degenerates, everything gets worse, which is really funny because they still refuse uh, to accept the idea uh, that evolution cannot be true based on the fact that according to evolution, everything runs up, right? Because we came from nothing and got better and better and better and better. And yet everything in life shows us nothing gets better and better. Everything gets worse and worse, right? Everything gets, that's called aging and stuff because of the world we live in, that the very earth itself has been contaminated by the sin principle, which causes death. And all of life is a process to death and is a running down, right? You understand that? The minute you're born again, things start happening and you start aging, which is part of the aging process, which is part of degeneration, right? So from the very beginning. So even their own uh, laws uh, prove that evolution is not true. But then the, one of the reasons why evolution is held on so good is because Christians tend to keep pushing it. And you say, well, how do they keep pushing evolution? It's easy. See, <clears throat> most Christians, you know, the Bible says that when you got born again, you were recreated, Right. And you were when you were born again, you were born again, complete in him. That means that the moment you got born again, you were instantly you were a new creation. Right. But for some reason, Christians don't want to believe in this new creation. They want to believe in evolution because they and they prove it because they think that if they keep coming to church long enough, they will eventually evolve into the Christian that God wants them to be. And so in, in actuality, most Christians practice evolution, at least in their thought process. Listen, you're not evolving into the Christian God wants you to be. He recreated you in the spirit to make you the person he wanted you to be. Now, all you're trying to do is catch up. You hear that? So it's not an evolution. You're never going to become the person God wants you to be. You were born the person God wants you to be. Now you just have to renew your mind to line up with who you really are. Because most of how you think is not who you are. All right? Now, the real you is inside. The real you is that spirit in you, not all this other stuff, right? This body, this ain't you, right? It looks like you, but that's because it's wrapped around your spirit. But the real you is in the spirit, right? And your soul gives you your personality, it gives you your temperament and all that kind of stuff, and it works in it. And that's, that, that changes based on, on you. So, the whole point of this is that we were born again complete. And as we said, what, what that word complete means there, it says, and you are complete in him. When you got born again, see, uh, I'm a grandfather seven times over now. I've got my youngest grandson is just over two and my oldest, it will be 14 next month. Yeah, I think I tried. <laughs> I try to get the right dates. Mm -hmm. And out of those 17, every time we're there, and I've been at a couple of them, uh, a few of the births I was in town and able to go. And every time they're, born, we go to the hospital and you stand there waiting for them to open the window and they bring out the little, they wheel it in and there's that baby. And we do the same thing everybody else does. You look at them. Oh, look, it's a boy. It's a girl. Look, oh, aren't they pretty? And then the first thing you do is you start counting everything, right? Ah, there's you know, two ears, two eyes, a nose. There you go. Okay. Fingers. Oh, good. Yeah. Leg. Oh, good. They are complete. Glory to God. They're complete. Now, are they grown? Are they mature? No. But when they mature, uh, if they're born with two arms, are they going to have three when they grow up? No, of course not. What, are they, what does growing up mean? Technically, growing up and maturing simply means learning to use what you were born with. Isn't that right? They start learning how to walk. Whether or not 
learning how to walk with one leg, they learn how to walk with what they were born with, two legs. And they start walking, and then they learn how to use both hands. And you ever notice, as soon as they find their hands, all of a sudden it's like so amazing. You know, they just look at them constantly. And then they're thinking, what do they taste like? And, and, you know, and then that's, what, that's the progress, okay? And then they go from that. But growing up, maturing just simply means learning to use what you were born with. Christians, when people are born again, you are born again complete. Spiritual maturity is simply you learning to use what you were born with. It's just that simple, right? We're not waiting for the next thing to come through. We're, we're trying to learn how to use what he gave us when we got born again. We were recreated in his likeness and in his image. And I would even say in his power. Because by faith, we have access to his power, right? So, now, let's look at what he said. I want to go back to uh, Matthew 28, verse 18. All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, watch this. Go ye therefore. And notice, here he did not say, uh, and because I have all power, I'm giving it to you. He didn't say that. He said, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. In other words, you're going to go because I have all authority. You're going to go in my name. And you're going to do these wonderful, mighty works in my name because I have all power. And people say, well, yeah, but see, if we're faithful, then he will give us power. Okay, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says if you're faithful, he will increase what you've been faithful over. Right? It never says he'll give you more power. Matter of fact, the Bible's real clear in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but you shall receive power, ability, dunamis, miraculous ability, after that, the Holy Ghost comes upon you and it doesn't give any indication that that power is to grow or that you're, to, you're given a certain amount of power and then it continues to grow. The reason that can't be true is because you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So what you're receiving is not power, but the Holy Ghost. Amen. And that power is in the Holy Ghost, but it is in Christ because he has all authority. You got it? Now we're talking about the difference between ability and and authority. So the minute you get born again, John 1.12 tells us that as many as received him to them gave he power to become authority, to become the sons of God. Right? So the minute we're born again, we have that authority. We become sons of God. We're sons the second we're born again. Then he says, and because you are sons, Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because we are sons, he sends his spirit, the spirit of his son, same spirit, to us that lets us cry, Abba, Father, and makes us sons. And because we have his spirit and it was the spirit that gives us power, then that power is in Christ. So the power is not yours in the sense of that is something you, you own. It is yours in the sense that it is no longer you that live, but Christ who lives in you. So when you minister healing, when you minister to any person, when you cast out a devil or anything else, it is not you saying it, Jesus deciding whether to agree with you and then deciding how much power to release to get it done. When you speak in his name, it's as if he's speaking and it's as if it is all authority that's in his name. Whenever a policeman pulls you over, you don't look at him and go, what? He's only a, he's only a corporal. He's not even a sergeant. He's certainly not the chief of police. So I, I really don't have to obey him. I mean, he, he doesn't really have any real authority. 
If he had real authority, he'd have stars or bars or something on there. You know, he'd have some, if he had real authority. But he, he's just lower level. So when he gets enough authority and tries to pull me over, then I'll let him pull me over. Okay, yeah, see how that works out for you, right? Okay, the fact is, it doesn't matter if he just got hired on that morning. If he just got his certificate from the state that says you're a certified peace officer for the state of Texas, the minute he's handed that badge, guess what? He has the full authority of the city, state, whatever that hired him. All that means is all of their authority is behind him. And if he needs to draw on it, all of that authority can come to bear on that situation. For an example of that, it's really easy to see. All you have to do is hear that call go out over the radio, officer down. You get that call, see what happens. Every officer will immediately congregate at that area and they're bringing all the firepower, all the, I mean, every bit of their problem-solving ability is coming to that place, right? Why? Because one of them down is all of them down. And they recognize that. Why? Because it's not about the name. When the policeman pulls you over, you don't say, let me see, well, what is your name? Right, let, me, let me check and see if you're a real policeman. No, that badge is what counts, right? And that city that gave him that badge. And if you go to court, it does not say officer such and such or his, just his name uh, versus you. It says the city of versus you. You get that? So that, is not, that has nothing to do with his authority. It has to do with the authority of the one he represents. Do you get that? And once you get a hold of that, now you start to realize, listen, when I step up, it's not about me. It's not about my name. It's not about John Lake's name. It's not about anybody's name, but his name. And his name has everything behind it. Why? Because he has been given a name above every name. He has been exalted and given a name that at that name, everything that has a name must bow its knee. You get that? Everything. If you can name it, it's got to bow its knee. If it's got a name of cancer, it's got to bow its knee. And even if it doesn't have a name, you can call it whatever you want and it has to bow its knee. Right? You can even say you. You, you that ain't got a name. Today, you're called no name. Bow your knee, right? And so you automatically have that. It's not about you because it's no longer you that live, but Christ who lives in you. Jesus said, when you speak, if they hear you, they, they're, listen, he said, if they reject you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Why? Because if, if you speak in my name, I'm speaking. You see, we, we've missed that. We think there's still some separation. Look at what Jesus said to, to Saul on the road to Damascus. What did he say? He blinded him. And the first thing he said, why do you persecute me? And he said, Lord, who are you? Said, Come on. I've never persecuted Jesus. And what did he say? You're persecuting my body. And if you're persecuting my body, you're persecuting me. Right? See, if you slap me on the arm, you might not have slapped me in the face, but you still slap me. Why? Because now we're connected. Amen? That's part of my body. And whenever you do that with Jesus, it's the same thing. When you become part of his body, you're part of his body. When you speak, he speaks. Do you get that? Once you understand this, it's an entirely new world. Everything changes. How you live, how you see things, how you speak, how you talk. I mean, everything is different. And honestly, your closest friends, your closest relatives, the people around you, if they're not on the same track with you, they will not get it. They will not understand you. They'll think you're crazy. They'll, well, it depends. Even if they're heading in the same direction but not there yet, the Bible says that the carnal, to be carnally minded is death. And it says that the carnally minded person does not understand the things of the Spirit because the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned and the carnally minded cannot understand them. So even if somebody's born again, 
but they're carnally minded. You can talk about these things and they won't get it because their carnal mind is at enmity. It's at, it's, it, there, it's, there's hostility towards God. Even if they're born again, their carnal mind still works against the things of God. And so they'll start looking at you. Who do you think you are? And it's like, you're not hearing me. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about him. Yeah. Well, but you said you can heal the sick. I never said that. What I said was I can lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Why? Because of him. It has nothing to do with me in that sense. I mean, I'm, I'll be obedient, but he's not rewarding me because I've been a good, faithful Christian for all those years. It's, that's not why. Right? It's just because I will give myself to him, accept his will and do what he asked me to do. Right? And you say, well, how do you know what he asked you to do? He's wrote it down for you. See, one of the big problems is everybody's waiting on a phone call from God. He's already sent you a letter. You see? And they're all waiting for that phone call. And it's very clear. The letter is better than the phone call. Why? Because it's written down. Isn't it funny how everybody today, if you, in the old days, remember what it was? If you were going to uh, make a contract, it was a verbal contract, you, you, you gave your word and you shook hands. And, and that, well, if I got his word, that's what counts. Not no more. Now everybody wants a contract. They want it on paper. I want to see it in black and white. I want, paper. I want your name signed to it. I want some kind of paper that says it. And God says, yeah, I knew that was coming, so I gave you that. And now everybody says, well, I'm not sure. Can I hear something? Because I've already given you a written contract. I've already given you a covenant. I've already given you a new testament, a last will and testament of Jesus Christ. This is his will. This is what he wants done. And not only did he die to provide it, he came back to make sure it was carried out right. That's pretty good. Amen? Amen. We're going to take a break after time. <laughs> so. <laughs>